Hi, everyone. This Quorum episode this month will count for CME credit with ACP. Yay. We will link the exact URL in the show notes, so click on the link, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, cue the intro. We had our latest morbidity and mortality conference a couple of weeks ago, and since then I've been thinking. We're supposed to learn from our mistakes. That's the assumption these conferences are built on. But how? How do we go about doing that, actually? What do I do to uncover the truth of what went wrong in my thinking, especially when I barely understand how my own brain works, and when I suspect I can't fully trust it to investigate itself objectively because of the fragility of memory and of my pride? I think back to my training, and I remember blocks on kidney disease, conferences on epidemiology, getting my cases precepted in clinic. But when it comes to how we as doctors should be analyzing our diagnostic failures, I guess the unspoken assumption I worked with was just, I'd just figure it out along the way. But at this point in my career, I'm not so sure anymore. A couple of years ago, I had a case that's stuck with me, a case in which I missed the diagnosis. Fortunately, no harm came to the patient. He was treated appropriately, he recovered, and his diagnosis wasn't even delayed because another clinician immediately recognized what he had. But ever since, that case has bothered me. Because to this day, I don't think I truly understand why I missed that diagnosis. Now that we've been doing hoofbeats, I've been thinking, what might I learn if I saw another clinician, one with greater experience or different perspective, go through that case? And what might we learn about this process in general, about how we ought to learn from our mistakes? Well, on this week's episode, we're going to do just that. I'll present this case for you to solve. Now, we'll use a 20 questions format, so I'll start by giving you just some basic information, then ask you to think about what questions you'd want to ask next and in what order. We'll follow along with no fewer than three different discussants whom we challenge in the same way, each of whom successfully diagnosed this case, to both my wonderment and chagrin. And hopefully by the end, I'll have the answer to my question How did they succeed and why did I fail? My null hypothesis? That I'm just an idiot. With Core IM, I'm John Hua. And I'm Cindy Fain. We are general internists, faculty at the NYU School of Medicine, and this is Hoofbeats. Stay with us for the case. A 39-year-old man carrying a diagnosis of schizophrenia, currently hospitalized in the inpatient psychiatric unit, is transferred to your medical service after developing a fever to 102 degrees Fahrenheit. On interview, he is reticent and minimally verbal, which is consistent with the behavior the unit staff have been observing since his arrival. He acknowledges that he feels feverish and that his appetite is poor but he denies all other symptoms, and that specifically includes headaches, rhinorrhea, sore throats, cough, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea, dysuria. He volunteers no medical history, but doesn't really get routine medical care. On exam, the repeat temperature is 103.6, and he's mildly tachycardic to 108. Meanwhile, his blood pressure, respirations, and oxygen saturation are all normal. He is quiet and withdrawn, but alert, and doesn't appear toxic in any sense. So we'll start with that. To diagnose this patient, what would you focus on next? What additional information would you like to have, whether it's more history, exam, tests? Take a moment to think about it, and we'll hear from our first two discussants after the break. 
one question that I just, for me, would unfold so much more of the case is, what meds is he on? Mm -hmm. Um, Because, yes, there's this whole thing about, yes, it's a fever, and so there's, you know, various categories of infection and different kinds of infection, acute and chronic infection, and blah, 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 blah. I want to know his meds are. We started off by inviting back two discussants who've previously been on Hoofbeats. The voice you hear jumping straight into the med list is Dr. David Stern, and he is joined by Dr. Patrick Cox. Both are general internists and senior faculty at NYU. When you mention a psychiatric illness and a medical condition, that being fevers, it has already provided some organizational framework of which to think about this, totally. right? Regular Hoofbeats listeners may remember a few episodes back when Dr. Cox and Stern handled the case we gave them with ease. It was a young man with metastatic gastric cancer. Well, after that, we obviously had to up the ante. So not only did we make them ask for whatever data they wanted, we made them ask it in only yes or no questions, you know, so that they wouldn't get any free information from our answers. Yeah, let's talk about our top six questions. You could say that the gauntlet has been... And it may be that we have a branch point in there, but that's okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I've thrown out my, my first question. It's just really meds. I, I just cared. Yeah, immunocompromised or not was yeah. what I mm-hmm. was thinking. Yeah, which you get from the meds. That's true. Likely. But it depends on how many meds he has. It may take up all six of our questions. <laughs> no, I thought I was going to ask for a med list. <laughs> oh, okay. And I was going to get a med list, and it's not going to be a yes or no. Okay. Like, how can you ask a he – can't, he can't do that. Yeah. He's got to actually give us the meds. Yes. So the, the two the branch points in my mind were immunocompromised or not. Yeah. Absolutely. And then whether, and this is, I have to think about how to formulate this in the yes, no, but was his presenting symptom to the psychiatry unit mania and sort of hyperadrenergic? Mm-hmm. Was it delusional slash psychotic mm-hmm. or was it uh, a hypomanic slash flat affect? Um, the only other thing I was thinking about is talk screen sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, which gets the same thing that you're getting at, like, is, is it? If he comes in in a hyperadrenergic state, then is he really psychotic or is he actually has some toxicity that we're looking at? Yeah, like uh, either taking something or withdrawing something. Exactly. SSRI. How many questions do we have? Maybe three. All right. Meds, immunocompromised state, drug screen. But but uh, your your other question was sort of – More like history. Because like, if he presents delusional slash psychotic and yeah. then develops a fever, thinking more about an organic brain process like encephalitis or men- so meningoencephalitis. So complaint. Yeah. If he's you know, hypernergic or, or, or yeah, yeah. then thinking about toxidromes. And if he is flat, Wilson's or some yeah. – you know, the fever we'd have to – to deal with, deal with it. The only, and this is a minor question, which I would put in the lesser, in, in the category B, these are things that would be interesting, sort of depends on how things play out. Time of year came to yes. mind, mm-hmm. um, just because of like Babesia or mm-hmm. influenza mm-hmm. or, and like for somebody mm-hmm. to show up in the site, I mean, they could be giving a case of a schizophrenic who mm-hmm. developed influenza in the hospital. Like, <laughs> but, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Did I get it already? <laughs> we have to go on to the next case. So, well. so let's answer some of these questions for you folks. So their first question, they ask what medications the patient is currently taking. Those are clonazepine, haloperidol, and lithium. He's also prescribed diphenhydramine as needed for sleep. Nothing else. Next, they asked whether the patient was immunocompromised in any way. Kind of a broad question, since there are many forms of immunocompromise. Maybe you should have made them atomized. Uh, maybe. 
But you know what? You don't say no to your former program director or the vice chair for faculty affairs. And regardless, the answer was the same across the board. No. Uh, he had a fourth-generation HIV screening test on admission, which was negative. A hemoglobin A1c measurement confirmed that he wasn't diabetic. He didn't appear severely malnourished. And he wasn't on any immunosuppressants, uh, or for that matter, any other medications, aside from what you just said. Third question. They wanted to know how the patient initially presented to the psychiatric unit. As it turns out, the patient lived in a homeless shelter and was sent in by staff there, who reported he was behaving psychotically, responding to internal stimuli, guarded, and neglecting his self-care. However, he was not violent or agitated, nor did he appear dysthymic. And in terms of the time of year, this case occurred in early July uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. So no, this wasn't the flu, though this show being called Hoofbeats, we appreciate the thought. It's interesting, only because most psych admissions tend to be 14 days from insurance perspectives. <laughs> um, uh, you haven't been at Bellevue for a while. So, yeah, no, I haven't. Uh, I'm curious as to why you wanted to know how long, just to see if it was something they brought in from the outside. Ex yeah, ex exactly. So when I would like sort of this idea of how he presented, if he was coming in in a toxidrome, if he was coming right. in with, a, you know, a, a viral encephalitis, would anticipate there to be a lot of overlap and that they wouldn't have taken 14 days for him to present with a, this high feet report. Right. It allows us to, to get rid of the tox screen yeah. with mm -hmm. the exception of the idea that somebody's bringing him in something that's mm -hmm. causing him to be mm -hmm. toxic or mm -hmm. withdrawing or something. But otherwise, uh, whatever that is, eight and nine, 17 days is too long. It's too long for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm very fixated on the meds. Gets me back to his medicines again. Yeah, um, are there any meds that were added or changed once he came in? Uh, yes and no. The patient was supposed to be taking two medications as an outpatient. Mm -hmm. Lithium, clozapine. Those medications were resumed during the hospitalization. But it's unclear whether he was actually taking them as an outpatient. Okay. And when he got into the hospital... He was, those were reinitiated? That's right. You and, want to know when? Yeah, please. Hospital day two. And anything else change from hospital day two to the ninth? Anything Did they, else, I'm sorry, in terms of his meds? The uh, haloperidol was added on hospital day four. Yeah. Two milligrams twice a day orally. So the, the, his med list suggests that he has an underlying psychiatric illness to begin with. And so it's, it's reframed the, the way I'm thinking about this now. You know, the way when I first heard the chief complaint and thought of the context of this conversation, thought it would be a primary psychiatric presentation of a disease process that would unify neuropsychiatric symptoms on this high fever. The fact that he comes to his initial presentation on these medicines suggests that this is a chronic process. And I'm less inclined to tie them together. Okay, so just to review, uh, so far we have a presumably immunocompetent 39-year-old man with schizophrenia in the psych unit, uh, started on clozapine and lithium, followed by haloperidol, and then a little over two weeks into his hospitalization, he develops this fever. At this point, they requested the complete blood count. On the day of the first fever, the total white count is normal, 5.2. 47% neutrophils, 28% lymphs, 16% manos, 7% eels. In relative terms, the manos and eels are modestly elevated, but to save you the trouble of doing the math, the absolute cell counts are within normal limits. 
the hemoglobin and platelets are normal. Our discussants then asked for a hepatic panel. Those results, the transaminases were slightly elevated, AST 83, ALT 84 uh, international units per liter, which is a little bit over twice the upper limit of normal. Uh, These had been normal when last checked on the first day of his hospitalization. Uh, Meanwhile, the alkaline phosphatase and bilirubin measurements uh, were both within norms. At this point, they shifted to the physical exam. They asked whether clonus hyperreflexia or diaphoresis were present, findings that would be consistent with serotonin syndrome. They also asked whether there was any rigidity. Those were all absent. They also wanted to know more about the pattern of the fever. How high did it reach and how many days did it last? Well, the temperature reached a maximum of 103.6 degrees Fahrenheit, and he was persistently febrile even after 72 hours. Every single temperature that was measured was elevated, in spite of repeated doses of acetaminophen. Uh, I just think that his degree of pyrexia is unique, right? 103.6 is unique. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, And the acuity of this is also drives me in a particular way. I mean, again... Like you said, it's against a pyogenic infection. It's also against any one of the sort of more chronic low-grade, I mean, TB, for example. Like, I mean, for somebody to suddenly show up with a fever of 103 and, you know, have one of these other infections that does, that is an infection but does not cause an elevated white count, I just, that's not there. I mean, mean, that's what made me think of serotonin syndrome. But the lack of clonus makes it less likely. So we're at 10 questions, and at this point, Dr. Cox asked whether there was a rash. And yes, there was. It was a diffuse eruption of pustules and papules. By asking follow-up questions, our discussants established that these lesions were scattered across the face, the chest, trunk, back, and arms, while the legs seemed relatively spared. There were a few lesions on the palms, none on the soles, and nothing in the mouth or on the genitals. When asked, the patient denied that these lesions were particularly painful or pruritic. In fact, he barely seemed to have registered the presence of the rash at all, as he couldn't exactly recall when or where it had started. For what it's worth, notes written by the staff psychiatrists earlier that week hadn't mentioned any rash. Aside from the rash, the rest of his physical exam was relatively unremarkable. He had a soft systolic murmur in the pulmonic area that did not radiate. The lungs were clear. There was no appreciable hepatosplenomegaly or tenderness. There were no joint infusions. The prostate was non-tender on rectal exam. And it's at this point, after asking roughly 15 questions, having heard that story, that exam, and some very basic labs, that our discussants proposed the correct diagnosis. I have to say I was surprised they got this so quickly. I had a long list of answers prepared to questions I thought they were going to ask. What did you think they were going to ask? I mean, this is just getting back to something you talked about in our last episode about how expert clinicians often spend a great deal of time thinking about who the patient is and what they're at risk for, you know, what Feltovich and Barrows called the enabling conditions. So I expected they'd want to know more about who this patient was. We could still round down the list in case any of our listeners want this information. Sure, Cindy. So more about this patient. Well, he was born in West Africa. He had immigrated to the United States in his early 20s and had been living in New York City for the past five years. He said he had not traveled outside of New York City within the past six months. Uh, He was unemployed. And as you said, Cindy, he was living in a shelter. He had used marijuana before, but otherwise denied any substance use. 
He had not been sexually active uh, within the past year. There was no significant family history. Uh, He had a father and brothers in Africa who were, as far as he knew, healthy. Uh, We also have some other test results that you folks may or may not be interested in. Uh, The basic metabolic panel was normal. The urinalysis was normal, and cultures of urine and blood showed no growth through 72 hours. His chest x-ray was read as clear. The serum creatine kinase uh, on the day of his fever was slightly elevated to 283 units per liter. This rose over the next 48 hours to 2,000 uh, before downtrending spontaneously thereafter. Clozapine and lithium levels were checked on the day of his fever. Those were both within target range. Uh, As I had said before, the HIV screening test was negative. He also had an HIV PCR test that was sent, and this too was negative. Uh, The RPR and TPPA assays uh, were both negative, and a urine PCR for gonococcus was negative. And I think for the most part, that's all the data that we had. So, Zhang, what did you think the patient had? Well, so I uh, am... I've been looking at the admission note that I wrote, uh, which is going to, I think, help keep me honest about my thought process. And so in the note, I, for my problem representation, I write, high persistent fever and diffuse papulopustular rash in a young man three weeks into an inpatient psychiatric hospitalization and resumption of clozapine, haldol, and lithium. Uh, and I thought that the patient was having some sort of uh, pustular febrile drug reaction. Um, acute generalized exanthematous pustulosis, or AGEP, uh, idiosyncratic clozapine reaction, an atypical form of dress, uh, maybe even sweet syndrome. How confident were you? Yeah, actually, I wasn't particularly confident, you know, in any of those diagnoses. I mean, I simply haven't seen enough examples of any of those things to be able to say I'm entirely confident in diagnosing them. But I was confident in that problem representation. I, I thought I was thinking about the case in the right way. Uh, I mean, we weren't in a rush that morning. We hadn't gotten many admissions. So, you know, we had time to create a differential. I remember very deliberately thinking about other categories. So in my note, for example, I also wrote maybe syphilis, uh, maybe acute HIV. This is before the PCR came back. I even tried thinking laterally a little bit. Maybe the rash was chronic and just overlooked. Maybe it could be related to lithium, which would make the real problem here uh that of a non-focal fever. But anyway, I I thought I was in the ballpark. And I wasn't. (laughs) Because half an hour after I saw this patient with my team and I left that note, the consulting dermatologist came by and immediately recognized the correct diagnosis and dropped the mic, so to speak, by leaving a brief yet incisive note, which I think is like time-stamped like 10 minutes after my hideous bumbling note with my Differential that somehow managed to be both overbaked and undercooked. Were they certain of their diagnosis? Uh, well, I mean, they put in a differential, but I think they were just being polite. And what was the correct diagnosis? <sighs> Chicken pox. So this uh, this was really embarrassing. <laughs> Wait, why? I mean, the diagnosis was not delayed. The patient was not affected. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, thank goodness for that. But, you know, even if he did fine, it's just scary to think it really could have hurt him, 
right? I mean, we know primary varicella it tends to be more severe in adults, significant minority developed pulmonary disease. You know, and, and had we gotten the diagnosis any earlier, it would have permitted earlier airborne isolation. He might have been fine. But can you imagine if, you know, he had been, you know, next to an immunocompromised patient? I guess fair, but to be honest, I don't think I would have gotten the varicella diagnosis either. Plus, primary varicella is just so rare. Uh, yeah, I mean, in adults, rare, yes. But it's not like it's some sort of exotic disease. We've all heard it. I mean, it would have been one thing if I had considered varicella, but just said, oh, it's too unlikely to test for, to treat. I mean, that's a problem of misjudging probability. And we've talked about mistakes like that on hoofbeats before. You know, I could comfort myself with the knowledge that humans generally suck at judging probabilities. But that wasn't the error that I committed. The problem was I never thought of varicella in the first place. And it feels embarrassing to be blindsided like that. In 1998, Dr. Georges Bordage wrote an influential paper titled, Why Did I Miss the Diagnosis? And in it, he describes how he asked 10 general internists to reflect on the reasons why they committed a diagnostic error at some point in the past year. And their answers included things that I think all of us can relate to. I didn't pay enough attention to a finding. I didn't know enough about the disease. I let the consultant convince me. But number one on the list, the most common error they reported was, the diagnosis never crossed my mind. I think I can relate to that too often than I'm willing to admit. But the problem is, simply recognizing that doesn't stop me from doing it again. Yeah, exactly. It's not like I chose to not think of varicella. Well, at least you'll never forget to think of varicella the next time you see fever and rash after a case like this. Yes, I'm detecting the sarcasm in your voice, and I think that's exactly what's bothering me. The prospect that, you know, thanks to my brain's reliance on availability, this diagnostic error might end up having two victims. This patient who had chickenpox that I didn't see, and my next patient with fever and rash, in whom I'll see chickenpox that isn't there. There has to be a better takeaway from this case. I've just struggled with what that's supposed to be. So listeners, here's your second diagnostic challenge of this episode. If you did not think of primary varicella, why do you think you missed the diagnosis? And if you did get the diagnosis, good for you. Now please diagnose my co-host. Why didn't he get the diagnosis? What should his takeaway listen be? Take a moment to come up with some ideas, and we'll compare notes after the break. The way in which I reflect on and talk about the mistakes I've made as a doctor has been heavily influenced by vocabulary that I first learned in residency. Vocabulary I'm sure you're all familiar with, with words like anchoring and availability bias and premature closure. This language was supposed to facilitate self-reflection, and to enable us to communicate with one another about what went wrong in our diagnostic process. It was supposed to be a common tongue for self-improvement. Yet when I reflect on this case, I find myself at a loss for words. That morning when my resident first presented this patient to me, my mind jumped straight to an adverse drug reaction and it stayed there. So is the mistake that I committed premature closure? Does the fact that I spent an hour reading and creating my differential for the patient's rash somehow change that? Would I have thought of varicella had I just thought harder or longer? And how much? How much more time would I have had to spend before my closure is no longer considered premature? 
When I opened the chart, I read the note written the night before by the medical consultant in which he wrote he suspected a clozapine reaction. Does that mean I fell prey to diagnostic momentum? After I interviewed the patient and examined the rash myself, I was still convinced he was having a drug reaction. So is that an example of confirmation bias or overconfidence bias? Dr. Gurpreet Dhaliwal, uh, who you probably know is the distinguished diagnostician from UCSF, he writes, In sports, the exact same decision-making process can conjure different adjectives depending on the outcome. If the coach or athlete undertakes a high-risk play and the team wins, he or she is hailed as confident, strategic, experienced, gutsy. If the play results in a loss, the same decision is called short-sighted, foolish, overconfident, reckless. When a physician makes a challenging diagnosis with just a few pieces of information, she is called a brilliant diagnostician. If her diagnosis is wrong, it's called premature closure. He goes on to say, It is human nature to judge the quality of the decision-making process by the results rather than the logic. We cannot help it. Unquote. Concepts like this are helpful. In learning them, I now understand that human reasoning malfunctions in predictable ways. But there is an ambiguity in these terms, and that makes them prone to misuse. Yes, exactly. I think there's a laxness in their use that can actually distort or obscure the deeper meaning of our mistakes, rather than illuminating them. Bordage writes in his review that not only do interns make mistakes, but they commonly misunderstand why they make mistakes. And I think part of the problem is that these terms do not by themselves identify the root cause of our failures. Let's say I committed premature closure. Why did I prematurely close? Was it because I had insufficient data? Then why did I not gather enough data? Was it simply because I was a lazy doctor? Or was there a larger factor that affected my way of data gathering? If I keep asking these questions, ideally I can more precisely locate the lesion within my diagnostic process so that I can come up with an actionable strategy to prevent that from happening next time. What will be helpful is a way to search for answers to these questions systematically. And fortunately for us, this has been the object of considerable research. Beginning in the late 1980s, uh, there were a number of different authors, uh, including Chimowitz, Kasserer and Kopelman, Bordage and Graeber, to name a few. And they, by examining case records and interviewing physicians, sought to systematically compile different types of cognitive errors that seemed to lead to misdiagnosis. Now, there's considerable variation in the terminology that these different authors use, but their studies all had something in common. They took as a starting premise that diagnostic problem solving can be represented as a sequence of steps. First, the clinician starts by gathering and interpreting data. Next, that data is synthesized and hypotheses generated or triggered. And third, those hypotheses are subjected to a process of validation. These authors categorized and associated the various errors they identified based on where in this process they seem to be occurring. But right now, we're going to repurpose this framework to explore our case, to try to narrow down one or more deeper reasons why I never thought of the diagnosis of varicella. So, Zhang, I think it would make sense to start at the beginning of the process, the first step, data gathering. Right. Those studies we referred to earlier attributed a number of mistakes to this stage. Failing to gather important information while taking a history is an obvious example, but so is gathering excessive amounts of unhelpful information. 
Relying on history or exam findings elicited by other clinicians is another. Deficiencies in physical exam technique, along with performing an incomplete exam or failing to examine the patient at all, also fall under this category. And actually, there is something I overlooked in this patient's exam. And I'll be honest, if you're listening and you missed the diagnosis, you might be mad at me for this. I told you that the patient's rash consisted of papules and pustules, and it really did. But the dermatologist who saw the patient wrote that the patient also had some vesicles. And sure enough, when I went back to the bedside, I found that although the majority of lesions were papular or pustular, there were a couple of scattered vesicles, one on the hand, a couple on the chest, pinpoint blisters of clear fluid on an erythematous base. I had completely overlooked those. And even though you initially told Dr. Cox and Dr. Stern the rash was popular pustular, later when we showed them a picture of the rash, they immediately recognized that a couple of the lesions were actually vesicles. That seemed to be what led them to varicella. Uh, Almost pustular, actually. Yeah, right? Oh, no, that, those are vesicles. That's a vesicular. So, right, so vesicular, yeah, I think. I mean, that looks looks it to me. It's a, that, that, uh, Some of these do, and there's one that's... Yeah, vesicular and crusted over a bit. Um, does he have an S scar anywhere? No. What Damn are it. you thinking about? Rickettsial oh, pox? Yeah. So, IgG4 disease. Babesiosis. <laughs> Rickettsial pox. But, uh, Patrick Cox. That's always the IgG4. We all know that. Febrile diagnosis, diffuse vesicular right. rash. Yeah. On the palms, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean. Right. So, so coccidial. Rickettsial disease. Rickettsial disease. Um, syphilis. Right. But the degree of pyrexia is surprising to me. Chickenpox. Primary mm-hmm. varicella? Primary varicella. Strange on the hands, but on the chest. But in a 39 year old? I mean, I saw it once in my life. An adult with primary varicella. Although now the vaccine's not 100%. So maybe one obvious takeaway from this case for me, is just a simple rule. When a patient has a rash, you look at every single lesion. And the next time I see papules or pustules, I need to search for vesicles. Any vesicle can get a little bit pustular. We've talked about this previously, right? Data gathering is upstream of data integration. We've said this before, but if the quality of data gathering is poor, there's no way to reason your way to the correct diagnosis. This is why you can't rely on a clinical reasoning podcast to become a better diagnostician. Actually, John, I have an alternative interpretation of what happened here. But to explain, I think we need to introduce our third discussion for this episode. So I immediately and only thought neuroleptic malignant syndrome when I heard your one-liner. And so, so I guess the next question I have is, um, is really about what medications is he taking? I think I would have two main two main things that I would be thinking about. One is is this a um, a psychiatric emergency, a, pharm- a psychiatric pharmacologic emergency like neuroleptic malignant syndrome? I might wonder, oh, is this serotonin syndrome? Um, and then I'm like, well, he's a 37 year old or a young guy with a fever. So what do we know about a young man with a fever who also has some psych history? It sounds like he has a, a, a delusional disorder. But a young man with a fever, is he? what does he look like? What are his other vital signs look like? Core IM listeners, meet Dr. Barbara Porter. 
Dr. Porter is also a general internist and senior faculty here at NYU. Dr. Porter suggested the possibility of primary varicella very early on, without most of the case information that you'd heard. As you saw, she started the same way as our first two discussants did, asking about the medications. But then she deviates by going straight to the physical exam, which leads her to the rash. And does he have it, uh, what surface of his arms and legs? They seem to be on both the dorsal and the ventral surface, is that, if that's what you're asking. Yeah. And, and how about his digits? There aren't any on his digits, maybe a couple on his palms. Oh, on his palms. Okay. So, um, on his soles too? Not on his soles. How about in his mouth? Does he have any lesions inside of his mouth? Nothing inside the mouth. So, and his conjunctiva? Conjunctiva are clear. And you called it pustular papules? Mm-hmm. And the pustules, do they have, are they f- clear fluid filled or? Not really. They don't look like dew drops on a rose petal, for example. Not really. That's not what you thought when you saw them. Okay. All right. I mean, I'm wondering if I'm like, oh, is it varicella? And then, of course, I'm thinking it's the syphilis, because what's not syphilis? You know? <laughs> what, uh, what triggered syphilis and what triggered varicella? Well, so what triggered syphilis was when you said his palms. Mm-hmm. So, and that was like... You know, if this, then that. You know, if Palmer, then syphilis. Um, and I don't know what made me think varicella, but um, but something about fever and a diffuse rash with pustules made me think, oh, is this something that we just don't see a lot of? And a guy who's right on the cusp of the age where we started immunizing people against varicella, although I don't know where he would have picked that up. So, and I, and I don't remember when fever is part of varicella, but that, but a viral illness like that crossed my mind. Actually, when you said the fever, I was like, oh, it's a high fever, like you see in viruses in children. So. Now, just to clarify for our listeners, I was describing the patient's papulopustular rash to her, but I had not shown her the picture at this point. And that's my point. You hear how she thought of varicella. Something about this patient's young age reminded her of this diagnosis. And at that point, she openly questions whether the rash you saw was in fact vesicular. So five minutes ago, you said you didn't think of varicella because you missed the vesicles. But could it be the other way around? I see what you're getting at, Cindy. Dr. Porter didn't need the photo to think of varicella. She looked for vesicles because she was thinking of varicella. So the question is, did I not think of varicella because I didn't notice the vesicles? Or did I overlook the vesicles because I wasn't thinking of varicella? I mean, humans see what they expect to see. There was an influential study by Jeffrey Norman in which doctors were given a series of photos, each one showing classic physical exam findings straight out of a textbook like Mailer rash, moon facies, jaundice. The authors found that the subjects were able to, for the most part, identify images correctly. However, if they were given a case history along with the photo, they tended to interpret the images differently, in a way to support a diagnosis that would fit the history better. Yes, Cindy, I remember that study. So like, for example, subjects could easily identify a textbook image of moon facies in a patient with Cushing's disease, But if you told them beforehand the patient was a heavy smoker, they'd mistake that same picture for facial plethora, you know, thinking about SVC syndrome. And 
Maybe it's not surprising that the brain works this way, and our observations usually have context. But the degree to which expectations can distort perception should still be concerning. Like, for example, I remember Norman's group noted that subjects who were told that a patient had liver disease saw jaundice in a photo of a man who, in reality, just had a healthy tan, and they made that mistake even though the sclera in the photo were clearly white. Right. So to me, it seems like an oversimplification, saying that the root cause was a failure in data gathering. Because even though data gathering informs hypothesis generation, hypothesis generation also influences data gathering. I got you, Cindy. I mean, obviously, the point isn't that I get a pass for overlooking vesicles on exam. The takeaway here is that when I realize I've missed a finding on exam, I can't simply dismiss this as a lapse in attentiveness, something that can be avoided simply if next time I look harder, I be more thorough. It's also potentially a cognitive error, looking for the wrong things, or even worse, not thinking about what to look for at all. As Georges Bordage writes, if you don't know what you're looking for, there's a good chance you won't see it no matter how thoroughly you look. When in doubt, step back and view the problem from a different angle. Gather and interpret data with another diagnosis or differential diagnosis in mind. Unquote. So Cindy, we've just been talking about how in the model of the diagnostic process that we've borrowed from earlier authors, some errors seem to fall under the category of data gathering, others to hypothesis generation, but that these two sub-processes seem closely linked and interdependent, almost recursive. And in fact, the authors themselves highlighted this interdependency and the iterative nature of the entire process. I think similar themes emerge when we move further along, when we consider the relationship between hypothesis generation and hypothesis evaluation. Um, what do you mean? So in order to better explain this, I think we can actually recreate a little experiment here for our listeners. Uh, folks, here's a challenge for you. I'm going to list six industries associated with one particular U.S. state. And as I give you each item, try to guess what state I'm thinking of. Are you ready? Number one, beef, like cattle, cows. Number two, fish. Number three, the aerospace industry, like rockets, space travel. Four, citrus fruits. Five, tourism. And number six, forestry. So what did you come up with? I'm completely lost. So let me explain. In 1979, Geddes and Fisher published a study in which they gave subjects a bunch of tasks just like this one, where they asked subjects to record their hypotheses after hearing each piece of data, as well as how subjectively plausible they thought that each hypothesis was. Now, the authors deliberately constructed the lists so that the first three items would favor one hypothesis, but the fourth, fifth, and sixth items would be inconsistent with that hypothesis. So, for example, the list that you just heard was designed such that a typical American subject, at least in 1979, uh, would hear cattle, fish, and aerospace industry and think of Texas, only to then hear citrus fruits, tourism, and forestry, none of which are consistent with that state. The correct answer here, by the way, is Florida. Those are six products of Florida. The author's main finding was that even though the subjects were steadily receiving more data, they didn't steadily generate new hypotheses. 
they were three times more likely to introduce new hypotheses when confronted with new data that decreased their subjective plausibility of their currently held hypothesis. So like thinking Texas and hearing aerospace industry didn't move the needle for most folks, but then hearing citrus fruit, that would prompt a flurry of new hypothesis generation. In other words, the study suggested that our existing hypotheses have to be contradicted before we can be bothered to come up with new ones. That's supposed to happen, right? I mean, we're supposed to come up with new ideas when the old ones don't seem to explain things anymore. Yeah, but if you really think about it, that doesn't seem optimal. And to better explain this, let's imagine that you have a patient with dyspnea and you suspect that they're having a COPD exacerbation. If you then hear wheezing on exam, okay, sure, that strengthens the plausibility of your presumed diagnosis of COPD. But logically, normatively, hearing the wheezing should also trigger other diagnoses associated with that cue, right? Like pulmonary edema from CHF could cause wheezing. Vocal cord dysfunction could cause wheezing. For that matter, other things besides COPD that cause bronchospasm could cause wheezing. But Geddes and Fisher's research suggested the brain cannot be trusted to work like this. We are prone to ignoring alternative hypotheses suggested by the data as long as that available data is still consistent with our favorite hypothesis. It's only when we receive and recognize data that contradicts our current hypothesis, like say if we got a chest x-ray that showed a wedge-shaped consolidation in the lung, only then do we search for an alternative explanation in earnest. This kind of behavior has been observed in a wide variety of contexts and is referred to as the win-stay-lose-shift heuristic. Though knowing that this is how my brain tends to work, are there tools I can utilize to quote-unquote counter the natural tendency? I don't think you can counter the tendency itself, nor would you want to, because win-stay-lose-shift, like other heuristics that we exhibit, is often successful. I think if we accept that our brain's use of heuristics is inevitable, I think there are basically two things we can do. The first is to try to augment the heuristic with a different way of conscious thinking, so that the diagnoses we come up with will not solely be the product of the heuristic. Right. Like the question we ask on teaching rounds all the time, what else could it be? This is a cognitive forcing strategy. And there are many ways to facilitate a search for additional diagnoses, right? Like as one example, a, a friend of the show, Dr. Andrew Parsons, suggests reframing the case by pairing aspects of the broader problem representation, like fever and rash, fever and antipsychotic use, antipsychotic use and rash, and then subjecting these mini-representations to standardized schema, like what's the most common cause of this, what's the worst case explanation for this, going down a list of organs. Had I adopted a strategy like this, maybe varicella would have been triggered in my head. And to be honest, cognitive forcing strategies probably merit their own episode. But heuristics are tools, not handicaps. So in addition to augmenting our heuristics with cognitive forcing strategies, I think we can also legitimately talk about how to optimize the performance of these heuristics themselves. We can try to understand under what conditions the heuristic is most likely to be successful. In the case of the win-stay-lose-shift heuristic, I need to be certain that I will recognize the data that is contradictory to my working hypothesis. In our case, that'd be the equivalent of asking myself, do I know what to look for that would be inconsistent with my working diagnosis of acute generalized exanthematous pustulosis? Am I knowledgeable enough about the way this disease, AGEP, should and shouldn't behave? In retrospect, I wasn't, and I think this was a major weakness in my diagnostic process. 
Earlier, we heard how all three of our discussants started with the same initial suspicion that I had, that this was some sort of adverse reaction to one of his medications. They had to have rejected this incorrect hypothesis in order to have worked their way to the correct one. What did they recognize in this case that I didn't, that enabled them to do this? With the fever, but then I go back to this crazy pustular rash? What medicine causes that? Diffusely? What? He's on psychiatry? Like, is it just that he happens to be on psychiatry when he got his viral illness? So. It bothers you that the rash is pustular. It seems to bother you. Because. Yeah, it makes it seem less drug-related to me. Less less of an uh, allergic type rash. So I'm like squarely in the viral briquetzeal, like in that zone. Like, that's the only place that I am right now. It's not about his meds. It's not about a bacterial infection. Mm-hmm. I don't know where you are. I mean, when I, when I first saw it, I thought it was rickettsia pox, but I got snide remarks from our lay presenter. Oh, she does not know. I know that you know that I know. Um, I, I would, I, the, the, the fe- so you can have pistular drug reactions that are acute. But the fever, to me, argues against that. That's a lot of fever. Yeah, no. and 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 the and the drugs that he's on. Like, you know, I don't see a drug fever with after that period of time. I just feel like that's a little odd. It's not great for the lithium and clozapine. And the Haldol started on six twenty four. So again, that's a little late as well. So the timing isn't great for the drug reaction, but it's not impossible. And the rash. I mean, again, I'm not going to see a rash. This does not, to me, look like like that. So a couple of things they mentioned here. Dr. Porter mentions that the postular rashes are, generally speaking, an uncommon manifestation of a drug reaction. At the time, that didn't bother me. I was aware that acute generalized exanthematous postulosis was an entity, and I had seen a postular form of dress a couple of years earlier. But it turns out these diseases are much rarer than I thought them to be. So my knowledge of base rates for these diagnoses was inadequate. Dr. Stern also mentions the time course, which I think is critical here. AJAP typically starts within a week, and often within just a day or two of the medication. This patient's rash started 14 days after his medications were started. Meanwhile, dress, as you probably know, typically occurs two to six weeks after initiating the medication, assuming it was the first challenge. So this patient's illness is kind of in this awkward in-between zone. Again, not impossible, but inconsistent. He also talked about how these are the wrong medications. HAP is almost always caused by antibiotics, antimalarials, ditiazine, um, that includes penicillin, cephalosporins, quinolones, sulfa drugs. Antipsychotics and lithium are not on that list. Remember that the highest risk medications for dress, meanwhile, are anti-epileptics, phenytoin, carbamazepine, lamotrigine, allopurinol is a common culprit, and some antibiotics, again, particularly sulfonamides. If you're wondering, uh, these medicines have something in common. They all have an aromatic ring. Antipsychotic-related dress definitely has been reported. In fact, I've seen two cases of clozapine-related dress here at Bellevue, which actually might have skewed the enabling conditions I have in my illness script for dress. Uh, But again, these medications are not classic. There's a great deal of variation in the way diseases behave. We expect pneumonia to cause a fever and cough, but every now and then it doesn't. This is a central challenge of diagnosis and arguably part of what makes it so rewarding. 
But with this kind of challenge, we stumble in two ways, right? Sometimes our expectations are too lenient. We overestimate how much variation a disease can have. And that's the kind of error that I made here, thinking that AGEP could plausibly present after two weeks or as a result of psychotropic medications. The consequence is that we keep a hypothesis we ought to have rejected. Right? In retrospect, it's obvious how treacherous of a ground I was standing on. I was invoking a rare type of drug reaction, attributing it to an atypical culprit, and following an uncharacteristic period of latency. Now, other times we have the opposite problem. Our expectations are too restrictive. We're too specific in how we expect a disease to behave. And the consequence there is that we reject a hypothesis that we ought to have kept. For example, I think of varicella as a disease of young children and profoundly immunocompromised adults, not healthy 39-year-old immigrants. So in other words, compared to an expert, our knowledge of diseases as novices is imprecise. Our mental representation of disease isn't finely tuned. It poorly approximates the way that that disease behaves in reality. Now, I'm not just bringing this up because it gives me another tangible thing that I can work on. Cindy, back when you and I first got interested in going deeper into clinical reasoning, I had this unspoken assumption that expert clinicians have certain strategies or problem-solving methods they use that enable them to succeed so consistently. But look what enabled our discussants to succeed here. They didn't use a cognitive forcing strategy. It was knowledge, specific, precise knowledge about given set of diseases, organized and accessible for their use when needed. In other words, clinical reasoning does not occur in a vacuum. Right, and that was basically one of the major turning points in the history of research into clinical reasoning. That central to the development of expertise isn't necessarily the acquisition of some general problem-solving skill applicable across all kinds of cases, but knowledge. As Gurpreet Dhaliwal writes, knowledge is king. Let's take a step back from a moment here. Are we making this more complicated than it has to be? How do you mean? Could simply be you just didn't get a diagnosis because you've never seen it before? I mean, primary varicella in an immunocompetent adult. That's really rare. Even Dr. Cox agrees with that. I think that we don't think about it because what is the primary manifestation of varicella varicella zoster virus that we see? It shingles, it's zoster, right? Like it is a dermatomal illness. We, how many primary varicella have you seen in your life? Never. Right? I've seen it once. Um, so I don't think we see it, right? We, 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 we think of it as a disease in a dermatomal distribution. Yet I would say 30 years ago, this patient would have, the, the, the psychiatrist would have been like, this is, this is primary varicella. Like, you know, isolate them and make sure everyone's tighter. I know what you're asking, Cindy. If knowledge is so important, then isn't getting experienced uh, worth more than just thinking about our reasoning? I mean, why bother having a hoofbeats podcast at all? I certainly don't doubt that uh, had I been more experienced, uh, I think I would have, there would have been a higher likelihood that I could have made that diagnosis of varicella. But there are just a couple of things about that conclusion that I think are just unsatisfying. One, I don't think we can attribute our discussion success in this case to their being more experienced than us. Um, because they've been practicing for a long time, yes, but recall we directly asked them how many cases of varicella they had seen before in their careers. Now, you just heard Dr. Cox himself say he's only seen a single case. And as for the others? I, I don't know that I've ever seen primary varicella. I don't know that I've ever seen in an adult. In an adult. And how many cases of varicella have you seen? 
Um, well, seven if I count my six brothers and sisters and myself. <laughs> but um, no, so I, you know, I saw it during training. Um, I haven't seen I haven't seen a case of varicella in a very long time. So it's, but I I I, I recollect seeing it in a um, in a grown up in during my training, like a young adult. I feel like they were immunocompromised. So it was an, un, you know, like an unusual case. So. So they are not varicella experts either. No, I, they're older, uh, but I guess they're not that old. My other problem with this explanation is it implies I won't diagnose anything that I haven't yet seen myself. And I don't want to be that kind of a doctor, someone who has to screw up in order to get better. I mean, can you imagine my retirement party? I can just imagine myself giving a speech. If I have seen far, it is only because I have stood on the shoulders of my patients' corpses. <laughs> and last, but maybe most importantly, now I know that experience is the best teacher, that that is an age-old proverb, but I think I've been a doctor long enough to say this, and I'm just going to say it straight. I Experience is not a good teacher. In fact, I think it kind of sucks. It does... All the kinds of things that we criticize mediocre attendings for doing, you know, probably the kind of stuff that my students complain about in my monthly evaluations. For one, experience doesn't always give feedback. And when it does, it's rarely in a timely fashion because consequences of our decisions aren't always immediate. Experience's teaching is inconsistent because not every bad decision leads to a bad consequence and not every sound decision leads to a good one. Experience doesn't always hold you accountable for your failures or recognize you for your successes because we work as part of teams within large systems. So once again, there's a difference between experience and expertise. By definition, experience makes you a more experienced doctor, but it does not necessarily make you an expert. Right. Experience without reflection turns us into what people call the experienced non-expert. And actually, as a young attending, I'm not even sure I can say that I'm that. But after our discussion today, I'm more convinced than ever that we've got to make space, find time, and put an effort into learning the right lessons from our mistakes. And for this case, at least finally, I've got some ideas. All right, listeners, that should do it for this episode. As always, you let us know uh, what you think as our case formats continue to permutate. And remember, if you have a case you would like to submit for discussion, or someone you'd like to come on and hear us a discussion, or if you are interested in developing and hosting an episode, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at www.coreimpodcast.com or send us an email at hello at coreimpodcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at, at coreimpodcast. Thank you to Drs. Barbara Porter, Patrick Cox, and David Stern as our discussants, as well as Amy O, oh, Shreya Trivedi, and Marty Freed. Special thanks to our audio editor for this episode, Harit Shah, along with our other QRIM colleagues. And an honorable mention, as always, to Dr. Stephen Liu. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of other affiliated institutions, nor should they be construed as medical advice. Please reason forward responsibly. Thank you for joining us with Core IM. I'm Cindy Fain. And I'm John Huang. See you next time.